Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. If you take a moment to uh, fill out the uh, uh, Connect card that was inserted into your bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, that's just a good way for us to get to know you and get to know a little bit of information about you, know how we can be praying for you, etc. Um, so take a moment, fill that out. Um, also, if, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. Uh, this is our third Sunday in a row looking at Nehemiah 8. Uh, as we are looking at what it looks like to be a people of the Word of God, uh, a people of the Word of God. And so we've been spending three weeks looking at that, uh, at this chapter, seeing what it looks like to be a people of the Word of God. This will be our final week, and then we'll scoot on to Nehemiah 9 next Sunday. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are white and blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. Take a uh, grab one of those and, and turn to page 229. That'll get you where you need to go, Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. All right. Let's dig in. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, <clears throat> let's listen with reverence and joy. On the second day, The heads of fathers' houses of all the people, the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day... From the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would anoint the preaching of your word now with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you open our hearts to receive your word, to receive the seed of the word and help our hearts to not be like the beaten down path or the rocky soil or the thorny soil, but help our hearts to be like that fresh, fertile soil that receives the seed of the word and produces 30, 60, 100 fold, that brings forth the fruit of of belief and trust and obedience in our lives, all for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So um, what does it look like to be a people of the Word of God? What does it look like to be a people of the Word of God? If If I were to ask you to picture a person who loved God's Word, 
a, a man or a woman uh, who, who was uh, a man or a woman of God's word, what would you envision? What would you picture? Perhaps you picture a seminary grad, maybe someone who carries a big old ESV study Bible around with them. Maybe you'll catch them reading it or maybe reading John Frame's systematic theology at a coffee shop early in the morning. Perhaps you envision something sort of nightmarish, as people often do, a a kind of Bible nerd who's a theology snob, condescending, petty, someone who knows a lot of information about the Bible, but but they don't really seem to have their soul nourished and affected by by what they hear and know. It doesn't really seem to, they don't really seem to obey those commands to love and be patient and be joyful. Someone with a, in other words, if you picture someone with a really big brain, but tiny little hands, they don't obey, and tiny little Grinch heart, they, they don't love. You know what I'm talking about? We've all met Christians like that. None, no one in this room, of course, though. Um, but, but does someone like that really love the Bible? Does someone like that really treasure God's Word? Should people who can be described in that way really be deemed people of the Word of God? And I think the Word of God actually gives us another picture of those who love God's Word, a, a picture which shows us that those who are truly people of the Word are those who are changed and reformed by God's Word. And by reformed, I don't mean the the reformed tradition, although that's good too, but I mean people who are spiritually and morally and emotionally changed by and according to God's word. We see a picture of this very thing in Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. Here we see that, yes, the people of the word, the people of the word of God are devoted to hearing and studying God's word, but they're devoted to hearing and studying God's word in a certain way, not just for the sake of learning more and more information, but in order to obey what is heard, in order to bear fruit, the fruit of belief, the fruit of trust, the fruit of obedience to what is heard. And we also see one of the distinguishing marks of of such a people is that they are a people of joy, a rejoicing people, the sort of big idea we're looking at this morning as we look at Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18, is that God's people ought to hear God's word, yes, and hearing God's word ought to bring forth the fruit of obedience, which brings much joy. Hearing God's word ought to bring forth the fruit of obedience, which brings much joy. And this is what it means to be reformed and changed according to the word of God. So three signs that those, uh, three signs of those who are being reformed according to God's word is hearing God's word, being devoted to hearing God's word, being devoted to obeying God's word, and then rejoicing, being a people of joy because obedience brings joy. Obedience to God's word brings joy. So hearing, obeying, and rejoicing. First, hearing is a sign of the people of God being reformed according to God's word. A few weeks ago, uh, we began our journey in Nehemiah 8 with seeing God's people, over 30,000 of them, Uh, gathering in the the square before the water gate to hear the word of God read and proclaimed to them. And they did so for about five to six hours. Now you can imagine the next day they'd be needing to, you know, maybe sleep in, uh, get some rest, veg out with some Netflix or something. Uh, That would be understandable. But that's not what they do. Some of them come back for more. And verse 13 shows us this. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the, the teacher, the, the sort of uh, the, the scribe, 
in order to study the words of the law. So they came back to learn more and hear more and to, to learn more about God's word. These were people who were hungry. They were devoted to hearing the word of God. We've seen this and reflected upon it already during our time in Nehemiah 8. But this morning in verses 13 to 18, we see a call not only to be devoted to the hearing of, of the word of God, but also to hearing the word of God in a certain kind of way. You know, what, uh, in many ways, how you hear God's word is just as important as hearing God's word. You know, growing up, I, I was uh, a, a very great source of frustration to my mother. I remember middle school, pretty much all throughout middle school and high school, my bedroom was in a constant state of disaster. It was a mess. And uh, I remember my mother sometimes telling me multiple times, you need to clean your room, son. Goodness gracious. And uh, I remember responding at times, I know I heard you. I know I, I heard you before. I know. And you know, of course, I heard her, but I didn't really hear her. And now that I'm a parent, I can sympathize and I want to thump that 16-year-old snot on the noggin. But you know, that's a kind of picture of the kind of hearing that the Bible actually condemns. The Bible abhors the kind of hearing which simply leads to the acquisition of information for information's sake. And so we must be on guard against those ki- being those kinds of, of hearers, especially in our particular tribe in Christianity, you know, uh, sort of evangelical, reformed kind of Christianity. Our particular tradition has often earned a reputation for being a people of the word because we love preaching, we love Bible studies, we love podcasts and education and all those sorts of things. And that's good. We should love those things. That's, that's, if we love the Bible, we ought to love the preaching of the word and Bible study and all of those things. But so often, we can settle for the sort of novelty of learning new things about the Bible, new things about theology, new things about biblical doctrine, without being as passionate about obedience to what the Word says. We can settle for a sort of mere data download. However, the kind of hearing that the Bible praises is the kind of hearing that leads to the to belief in what is stated, the kind of hearing that leads to trusting in what is promised, the kind of hearing that leads to obedience to what is commanded. We see this in a a parable from Jesus in Matthew 13, 3 through 9. It's called the parable of the sower. You can actually turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 13, 3 through 9. It's called the parable of the sower. And it's a short story. A parable is a sort of short story with uh, symbolizing um, uh, certain things. And this particular uh, parable is symbolizing what kind of hearers of the word we ought to be. And Jesus says this, starting in verse 3. He says, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. (coughs) Now, if you've not read this before, Your immediate thoughts may be, what in the world does that mean? And the disciples actually had the same sort of reaction. So a few verses later, Jesus takes time to explain the meaning of this parable to them. If you just look down the page a little bit, Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, 
but he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. You see, the kind of hearing that we ought to be devoted to when gathering together to hear the word read and preached, the kind of hearing that we ought to be devoted to when we read and study the Bible personally, the kind of hearing that we ought to be devoted to when we discuss the Bible in our city groups, is the kind of hearing that brings forth understanding and then bears, brings forth the fruit of obedience in our lives, which brings us to our next sign of a people being reformed according to God's word, obeying. And this is an essential part of the church's mission, you see. You know, when Jesus commissioned the church with her purpose in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, he said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them, and here's a really important part, teaching them to observe, to obey, to do all that I've commanded you. And the teaching task of the church is meant to lead to the obedience of God's people. And that's what we see here in verses 14 through 17. We see obedience to the word of God in Nehemiah 8. Look at what it says, starting in verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. In other words, what is happening here is that as the people of God gathered for the hearing of the word of God read and preached into their ears, they found that in a little over a week, that they were supposed to throw a party, okay? And this party, they, they, in, in this party, they were supposed to throw, it's, it's called the, the Feast of Booths, or uh, sometimes uh, it's called Sukkot. It's a party held uh, in, in the fall time. This year, it actually took place a few weeks ago, September 23rd through the 30th, and, and, and it's called the Feast of Booths. And the reason it's called this is because it's a camping party. Okay, it's all the families are to go outside of the city and get large leaves and branches and all of these things, and, 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 and they're supposed to use them to build little tents for themselves, little booths for themselves, and they're to camp out for a week, to camp out party. They stay in these booths on top of their houses, and, and uh, they had flat roofs so they could do that. Uh, they camped out in the temple courts and in the squares throughout the city and, 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 the, uh, and, and anywhere there was room. And you can imagine the kids love this. And the reason that they camped out like this during this uh, Feast of Booths is because uh, it's a very fun and tangible way to remember something specific. The feast commem- commemorated the, the 40 years that the Israelites had wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. During their wandering, they had no roof over their heads except their tents, so they were to remember this time and the season, the life of the people every year with this feast. 
And so they did so in order to celebrate the way that God was with his people during their 40 years in the wilderness, the the way that he had protected them, the way that he had provided for them. He protected them and and kept them safe from armies and attackers from along the way. He provided for them. He provided food and drink and clothing for them when they had none. He provided for them and he protected them so well. And then they celebrate this feast to to commemorate that time. And now... um, you know, as we're looking at this, as we're looking at the Feast of Booths and the people of God obeying this, there's a kind of awkward question that comes up. Some of you might be wondering, okay, so we're talking about obeying God's word and how the people celebrated the feast here in obedience to God's word, yet you're telling me this feast took place a few weeks ago and we didn't celebrate it at Veritas, that much is obvious. So what's the deal? Were were we being disobedient? Why don't we celebrate the Feast of Booths and the other Old Testament feasts today? And that, of course, brings up a bigger question, which is, why is it that we only obey some commands in the Old Testament and not others? That's a good question. Why is it that we still adhere to uh, commands that, you know, prohibit homosexuality or premarital sex and the like, but we don't obey commands concerning feast days or or executing Sabbath breakers or eating shellfish and and the like? Why, Why don't we obey those commands, but we obey others? And this is a good question. This is something that that often confuses non-Christians and sometimes can even confuse Christians. Even Christians as smart as Jed Bartlett have had trouble with this one in the past. Um, That's a pop culture reference. Uh, Actually, I guess it depends on what decade you were born in, if that is a a pop culture reference. Uh, Anyways, as Christians, we, we ought to obey... We believe that we ought to obey all of the commands in the New Testament, of course, which still speaks to topics like homosexuality and premarital sex and the like, but we only obey some commands in the Old Testament. Why is that? Well, as Christians, we, we must obey some Old Testament texts and not others. It, it's actually at the very heart of Christian belief that we ought to obey some Old Testament texts and not others. Why is that? Well, first, we need to recognize that the Old Testament contains a fair amount of commands that consider uh, and and speak to how the people of God were to worship and approach God in the Old Testament. There were a fair amount of commands regarding things like this, feast days and sacrifices and dietary restrictions, and they were all commands regarding how the people of God ought to worship and approach God in the Old Covenant. But all of these commands, as we learn in the New Testament, were foreshadowing something specific. They were foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. They were pointing the people forward to the person and work of Jesus. And this is what Paul is getting at in Colossians 2.16 when he says, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink. Those are the dietary restrictions in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those were the feast days. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, Christ is the fulfillment of these Old Testament ceremonial laws that the people were to obey in the Old Covenant. And so they're pointing forward to Jesus so that when Jesus comes, we no longer need to adhere to them. And not only in the New Testament, we we also see Old Testament writers at times uh, hinting at the reality that these laws were pointing to a far greater reality. 
And when Jesus came, he declared all, uh, all foods clean and he touched lepers and dead bodies and he didn't follow many of these ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. And the entire book of Hebrews speaks of this reality as well. The feasts and the temple and the sacrifices and the dietary restrictions, they were all temporary commands given in that part of the covenant. And now that the fullness has come, now that Christ has come, now that the one that they were ultimately pointing to has come, we no longer need to observe them. And not only no longer need to observe them, we must no longer observe them. The people of God no longer need the temple. We no longer need the priests. We no longer need the sacrifices. We no longer need the feast. Why? Because Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our priest. He's our sacrifice. He's our feast in the wilderness of life. And now he and he alone makes us acceptable and able to worship and approach God. Therefore, Christians, for Christians, it would be inconsistent of us and even disobedient of us, to the teaching of the Bible if we were to continue with these ceremonial laws from the Old Testament. That's why we don't obey some of the commands in the Old Testament. However, we do still obey other commands in the Old Testament, right? Which ones are those and why then? Well, Jesus is teaching from Matthew 5, 18 through 19. You can write that down. Paul's teaching from Romans 13, 8 through 10. Write that, that down as well. Show us that these moral laws are still binding on Christians. There are moral laws in the Old Testament that are still binding on Christians. So there's the ceremonial laws. We've touched on that. We no longer observe those. But then there are moral laws as well from the Old Testament. You see the distinction here. There's ceremonial laws, and these are given that, uh, commands that are given that have to do with the worship of God's people in the context of the Old Covenant. Uh, but then there are moral laws as well that are rooted in the eternal, unchanging character of God. The moral laws are given because God is good and righteous and faithful and loving, and he wants his people to reflect that character to him and to one another and to the world. Therefore, everything... What the Old Testament says about loving our neighbors and caring for the poor and being generous and being committed to our families and that all of that ought to be obeyed by Christians today. As Tim Keller put it so succinctly, he said, the coming of Christ changed the way that we worship, but not the way that we live. Now, there's also another category of commands in the Old Testament. Besides the ceremonial and moral, there are also civil laws, which those are laws having to do with penalties for breaking God's law. Sins like adultery and breaking the Sabbath, dishonoring your parents, and more, other, other commands, had civil penalties when people broke them, civil penalties like execution, because the people of God in the Old Testament, they were a nation state. In contrast, the people of God in the New Testament, we are not a nation state, but we are local assemblies of churches spread throughout the globe, and therefore, Christians live in many different countries and under many different governments, Therefore, we no longer have the responsibility to dole out civil penalties for breaking God's law. Instead, for the church and local assemblies, when people break God's law and we exhort one another to repentance. And when people don't repent, we remove unrepentant Christians from church membership. So to sort of summarize it all, because of the coming of Jesus, we no longer obey the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. However, we must and still do seek to obey the moral laws of the Old Testament. Furthermore, we must always seek to obey every command we see in the New Testament, whether it speaks to our doctrine, our worship, our social interaction, our morality. If a command is given in the New Testament, we ought to obey it. And if a moral command is given in the Old Testament, we ought to obey it. 
You see, we should not only be hearers of God's word only, but doers also. And James speaks to this when he speaks about God's law to uh, the, the church that he's writing to. He says in James 1, 22 through 25, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no, he, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, if our hearing doesn't lead to doing, we didn't truly hear. If our hearing doesn't lead to the bearing and yielding of fruit, then the devil snatched it from our hearts or we fell away because of suffering or opposition or we were distracted by the cares and riches of this world. But if we, but if we hear and truly hear and understand, we therefore obey what we've heard. Look again at verse 25, at the fruit of what comes though. When we obey the word of God, James 1 says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's such a wonderful way to, to talk about God's commandments. He calls it the law of liberty. And what will, what will one be if they are doing God's commandments? He will be blessed. We see a beautiful illustration of this at the end of verse 17 in Nehemiah 8 here. Look at what verse 17 says. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. So hearing God's word ought to bring forth the fruit of obedience, which brings much joy, much rejoicing, much gladness, much happiness. Bringing us to our last point, rejoicing. Rejoicing is a sign that a people are being reformed according to God's word. Now, here in this verse, Nehemiah is not saying that the people of Israel had never celebrated the Feast of Booths before uh, since the days of Jeshua. By the way, Jeshua, uh, the son of Nun, is Joshua, the leader who succeeded Moses and led the people into the promised land in the book of Joshua. So same guy, uh, which took place about a thousand years before Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, anyways, Nehemiah is not saying that the people had not celebrated the Feast of Booths in the previous thousand years. They had celebrated it a few times during the reign of David, during the reign of Solomon and Hezekiah, and then the book of Ezra once. Rather, what Nehemiah is saying here is that the people of Israel had never celebrated the Feast of Booths in this way, okay? Never was there a time when this amount of people celebrated the feast, and never was there a time when they had done so with such joy, which, which is saying a lot. It's a really big deal because the Feast of Booths was already a joyful feast anyways, so Deuteronomy 6, 16, 14 gives instruction concerning this feast, and it specifically mentions you shall rejoice. This is a feast of joy. This is a feast wherein you rejoice. It says you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widows who are within your towns. You see, they were supposed to rejoice in this feast, the rabbis actually used to say that a man doesn't know what true joy is unless he's been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. They used to say that. This was already a joyful feast, and yet the joy-filled partying 
that took place at this particular celebration put all of those other feasts to shame. This was the happiest, the most joyful, the most delightful, the most most euphoric feast of booths in the history of God's people. But now Nehemiah, he's, he's not only giving us a history lesson on the people's joy during this feast, he's also making a very important connection for us here, the connection between obedience and joy. As J.I. Packer once said, nothing compares to knowing that you're doing God's will. Nothing will give you joy like doing God's will. If you don't have much joy, it might be because you're not being obedient. I fear sometimes that we don't really believe that. I fear that sometimes we think of being obedient to God's law, we, the sort of picture we have in our minds is a sort of joyless, tight-lipped, prudish, uptight, stiff-necked kind of living. We think of Angela from The Office, right? We think of the dad from Footloose. There's a kind of pursuit of obedience that, that leads to that sort of joyless, self-righteous attitude. It's called legalism, and it's actually not true obedience at all. It's a sort of pseudo-obedience, obedience for the sake of trying to earn God's love and kindness, which isn't true obedience at all. But for the people of God, we don't obey in order to earn God's love and kindness. Look again at verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, you see, they were already brought back. They had already returned. They weren't obeying for the sake of being brought into God's family. They were in like Flynn, baby. They were in. They were God's beloved children, a part of a special family. For Christians, you know, we don't obey to get into the family. Christ brings us into the family through his life, death, and resurrection. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in us so that we trust in him and become his beloved children. And then we obey because we're in the family. Obedience is a fruit of belonging to God's family, not the basis for belonging to God's family. We don't obey to belong. We obey because we already belong. And you know what? That kind of obedience brings much joy to our hearts and lives. Living according to God's word brings true joy, true flourishing, true thriving in life. And that only makes sense, doesn't it? If God is our creator and we are his creatures, then wouldn't he know how life works best? Wouldn't he know what will lead to true flourishing, true joy? My, my good buddy, Abraham Kuyper, he illustrates this truth well. He writes in his book, Lectures on Calvinism, he says, as believers, we adjust ourselves to God's commands, not by force, as though they were a yoke of which we would like to rid ourselves, but with the same readiness with which we follow a guide through the desert, recognizing that we're ignorant of the path, which the guide knows, and therefore acknowledging that there's no safety but in closely following in his footsteps. You see, God's commands are meant to keep us safe in flourishing and thriving as human beings. All of God's commandments are given to bring us joy. There's nothing like living according to God's will. God's commandments are meant to bring us much joy. Obeying God's commandments brings us much joy. And you know, we can rest assured that God's commands are meant to bring us joy, not only because God is our creator, but also because he's our redeemer. You know, the same God who gives us the commands contained in his word is the same God who's given us Jesus. 
The God who gives us these commandments is the same God who took on flesh and died on our behalf because we haven't obeyed them. All of those, those moral commands that we, that we ought to obey, we haven't. And all of those commandments that we ought to have obeyed, he did. But then he went to the cross to die the death of a cursed man, to die the death of a disobedient wretch, to die the death that you and I deserve. But then he not only died in our place and for our forgiveness, he he also died and moreover rose again on the third day so that we could obey him, so that we would obey him, so that we would obey his commandments. And, 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 and not that we would obey him in such a way that, that leads to a mere sort of behavior modification, but like Paul says in Romans six seventeen, in response, he's, he's writing in response to all that Christ has done for us and for our salvation. And he says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Obedient from the heart. Christ, his, his person, his teaching, his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his gifts melt our hearts of stone and causes us to want to be obedient from the heart. Because here's a God who loves us so much, although we're so unlovable. Here's a God who loves us so much that it cost him, it cost him suffering and torture and crucifixion and death. Here's a God that loves us so much and his love beckons us to love him in response. The only reason we love him is because he first loved us and he gave himself for us. I want to leave you with the words of Jesus from John 15, 4. He gives us this instruction. Look at what he says. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And a few verses later, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, listen, listen, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If you want to know how to be the good soil to receive the seed of the word, produce 30, 60, 100 fold, if you want to know how to keep God's commandments, be not only a hearer of the word only, but a doer also. If you want your joy to be full, in other words, if you want your joy to be full, Jesus tells you, abide in me, abide in me. And if you do, you will be a person who hears the word of the Lord in a way that leads to obedience to the word of the Lord. And your joy, your joy is, is a deep, steady, soulful gladness. Your joy will be full. Let's pray that it would be. Father, we pray that uh, 
this morning, and not only this morning, but as we gather every single Sunday, every single week, and hear your word, that you would help us to not come and be hearers only, but that you would send us forth in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to also be doers of the word. We know that that only comes through abiding in Christ. And so as we come to this meal here in a few moments, would you help us to abide in Christ, to commune with him, to experience, to to emotionally, spiritually, tangibly experience our union with him. Help us to experience our union with him this morning as we observe this meal And help us to be so strengthened by it as we go to our homes and to our places of employment and education and and the neighborhoods that you've called us to. Would you help us to be people who reflect your love and faithfulness and goodness and righteousness to all those that we come in contact with? Father, we we recognize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from being filled with your spirit, we can do nothing. Apart from your grace, there's no health in us. And so we cast ourselves at your feet, asking, Lord, for help. Asking that you would make us the good soil, that you would and plant your word in us in such a way that you would bear fruit in us 30, 60, 100 fold. And we pray these things for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those that we come in contact with. And in Jesus' name, amen.